0: find that on our YouTube page and uh, maybe listen to it this afternoon or sometime uh, at your leisure. But Matthew chapter 19 and these first 12 verses, Jesus is dealing with uh, the very important matter of marriage. And he's dealing with not only marriage, but he's dealing with divorce. And two subjects, of course, that are not uncommon in our day and age. Uh, We are Hearing about these things uh, on a day-to-day basis, uh, sadly, we're hearing more about the corruption and the perversion of marriage than we are uh, what the Bible actually says about it. Uh, but I want to, just to make sure we're right where we need to be contextually, I want to read the first 12 verses, although primarily today we're going to look at verses 7 through 12 as we covered most uh, all of those verses last week. Matthew 19, verse 1, it says that it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So last week when we looked at these first six verses and we dealt really with the subject of the divine law of marriage. And I mentioned to you that this chapter speaks even more about the spirit of humility uh, that is needed and the spirit that is needed and is appropriate for those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And I mentioned to you that in chapter 19 there are really three meetings that Jesus has with individuals. And it deals with the nature of man, uh, how man views marriage, how man views children, and specifically uh, how Jesus dealt with the character of a young man who uh, obviously did not understand what it was that he was standing before Jesus himself. But I mentioned to us last week that as the Pharisees came, remember the Pharisees were not coming to Jesus with an intent to learn. They were coming with an intent to try to catch Jesus in a trap. They wanted him to stumble. They wanted him to contradict himself. The Pharisees were never after the real truth. They were after an accusation. They were after a charge. They were after what can bring us to allow us to take him and to take him as a prisoner. Uh, You'll notice that in verse 3, and that's really what sets the context for today, it tells us that the Pharisees' intent was to tempt him. And they ask a question that is cunningly worded, and we talked about this last week, so I won't spend a lot of time. But notice it says, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Uh, The emphasis and the, the danger word here is the word lawful, and then the phrase for every cause. Uh, Again, I mentioned to you that the broader the the question, uh, the more doors in which could be opened, the more likely you are to entangle a person in that. They, They thought this question out. This was not just a random question. They thought, what is going to be the most likely way to entangle this man in his speech? And so that's what they had in mind here. Uh, Ultimately, what they're doing, and this will carry over into today, is they are attempting to show Jesus was opposed to the law of Moses. Remember at the heart of this, what they wanted Jesus to say is, I am in opposition to the law of Moses. Ultimately, that's what they wanted to hear. But we notice how Jesus answered them in verses four through six. He challenged them by asking them a question. He answered their question with a question. Have ye not read? That question was a forcible question because it was being asked to Pharisees who certainly have read. They knew the answer to the question. They knew what Jesus was getting ready to say. It was a mode of appealing to their own pride. Uh, They were acquainted with the book of Moses. I think I mentioned this last week uh, that these Pharisees probably knew the books of Moses better than you and I do. They know better what it said. They knew what the law was. They knew what they were supposed to, but the reality is, is they had a habit of twisting it, corrupting it, uh, taking away the intended meaning uh, in order to use it in this case as a means of entanglement. So I want you to keep that in mind. So he he took them all the way back to the beginning. And you'll notice again, just for review's sake, he says about, he in the beginning, he made, made them male and female. I mentioned to you, he, Jesus uh, ends all the gender discrepancies of our day and age. Uh, matter of fact, that's, that issue was solved in creation. And so for us who are Bible believers today, you have no issue and you should have no gender confusion whatsoever. God's already declared it. He's already said it. It's a settled matter. Don't allow yourself to be drawn into those conversations. Simply stand on, in the beginning, God created male and female. You already know what you believe. So stand on it. Don't move. Don't compromise. It's in the Bible. It's what God says. Male and female, period. There's not 48 other genders like I mentioned to you last week. There's two. Male and female always has been, always will be. That's what he declared. So he says, for that cause, now again, male and female, for that cause, one man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. We understand marriage is one man and one woman. By the way, no matter what society says, that's the way it was ordained. That's the way it's always going to be. One man, one woman. You see how easy God made this. You see how, how there really is no argument in society today for believers. It's very simple. One male, one woman. One male, one female. One male marries one female. End of story. We have that solution already. But notice again what's happening here. So he says that what, man, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder or let not man sever or separate. So instead of receiving the instruction, that's what leads us to the next question. We see that the question now is, they respond asking another question designed to entangle. Remember, that's the case. They say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Now, before we deal with this question, let's deal with the questions that we find in our day and age. Again, the intent today is not to make us uncomfortable or to make us in a sense of uh, agitation, but this passage deals not only with God's divine law of marriage, but also deals with God's law and divine law of divorce. So we have marriage and we have divorce. The question that's often asked, most often asked to me as a pastor is one of these three questions when it comes to divorce. First question is always the most broad, and it's this. Is God okay with divorce? That's the most often question I've been asked as a pastor, phrased that way. Is God okay with divorce? I'm emphasizing okay with divorce intentionally. That's the number one question I receive. Or does God approve of divorce? The third question is, am I allowed to get divorced? Now, based upon the text and what we're going to look at today, the premise of all three of those questions that I'm asked, or that maybe you've even been asked as a believer, is God okay with divorce or does he approve of divorce or am I allowed to get divorced? All start on the same faulty foundation that's similar to what the Pharisees are starting on. In other words, and again, I don't mean to be unkind, but we're looking for a loophole. We're looking for an out. We're looking for a way, and we've all heard it, we're looking for a way, if this doesn't work out, can I get out of it? I'd say, first of all, maybe on a rabbit trail, if you are even thinking about getting out of it before you ever say, I do, then you should not get married, period. Don't even go down that road. If it's even in your mind that you're going to consider if it doesn't work out, we'll just separate. Don't get married. You say, I've already got all the plans in place. Cancel them. I've already paid. Be out the money. It is much too serious to venture into marriage with an attitude that you're saying that if it doesn't work or I'm not happy, I'll just get out we shouldn't be looking for what does God, what is God okay with? Because these three questions and the question specifically that the Pharisees are asking was not to get a truthful answer, but rather to confirm that Jesus was in opposition to the Mosaic law. That's ultimately what's at the heart of this. Remember, all they really want to do is trap him. And by asking him, why did Moses command? Well, that's the first problem. That's the first problem. Moses never commanded divorce. As a matter of fact, what they were asking is not a random question. If we were to read the book of Moses and we were to read those books, we would be struck with the reality that what the Pharisees were actually asking is nowhere even found in the verses they were referring to now what i believe they were referring to was deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. now here's what it says listen carefully when a man hath taken a wife and married her and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her then let him write for her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, Or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth them for an inheritance. Now, Deuteronomy 24 goes on and gives a lot of other details and a lot about the Old Testament And again, I would encourage you to read through that. But it is these first four verses, it's what's the basis of their question. Nowhere in those first four verses does Moses command to divorce. I would suggest to you he doesn't even say, I approve of it or I agree with it. He is saying something entirely different and that's what's really at the heart of what's happening here. Now, Moses did not command anything, but what we're going to see from what Jesus is saying based upon this question is that this was a custom that was being tolerated and it was a custom that was very much in popularity. I mentioned to you last week that in those days, it was as simple for a marriage to break up as a husband saying, and I didn't mean, I'm not trying to be cute about this. I don't like the way you cook. You're out of here. It, that's how bad it got. And it was just simply, because here's all the Pharisees were focusing on. I read Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. They stopped, at, before they even got to the end of verse 1, here's where they stopped. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes. They zeroed in on that, and they said, okay, she's find no favor in my eyes, she's gone. The problem is, that's not what it says. It says, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Now that uncleanness is in the immorality area. Again, parents, I'll try to be careful today. It's in the immorality area in which he was speaking of. The Pharisees were stopping at, he found no favor in her my eyes, so she's gone. That's the premise in which they're starting upon. And I would suggest to you, if you go back to the three questions that I'm often asked, I would tell you that most times, not every time, not every time, don't paint it that broadly, many times people are wondering because they want to make sure that if something happens, is God okay with me getting out? Moses didn't command them, right? The Pharisees would never think about setting Moses against God and make him command something that altered the divine law, yet Jesus is making them see that in order for you to make your theory of a man putting away a wife because she's lost favor, you would have to completely do away with what God's law concerning divorce and marriage really was. In other words, what you're doing is not really God's law, it's what you want the law to be. You would have to go against what God has said. So what had happened is the Pharisees overemphasized that first phrase, that she find no favor in his eyes. Or in other words, it could have been something as simple as she just looked at him wrong. Now, if we were alive in those days, you would have seen this. This was rampant. There were women who were put out on the streets almost daily because the husband just said, I'm done with her. And there were many women who this happened to. So Moses, even in his day, found that what we would refer to as divorce in existence was almost being used in an unlimited fashion. Now understand that if you go through and you read Deuteronomy 24, Moses was not giving a license for divorce. And I think this is important to establish. He also was not establishing divorce. If anything, what he was doing through the inspired writing that he's doing through the the spirit of God was intent with it with something that was in existence already was trying to curtail or to do away with that which had become customary rather than all at once just forbidding it. Now stay with me for a few minutes. that's what he was that's what the law was doing and that Moses was giving there were they were not allowed to just simply or should not just send away a wife without a serious cause. Now, what had become the custom of the day? She lost favor in my eyes, so I'm going to let her go. The only exception was made, and again, it wasn't because, and get this, it wasn't because God approved of it or because God was okay with it, but there was this exception that was made for an act of uncleanness. Now, let's just state it as clearly as we can. That is a serious thing. Now, I know in our day and age, it doesn't appear to be. It's on all of your entertainment as if it's no big deal. But you do understand that infidelity to a spouse is a serious sin that's an abomination to God every time. Even if you say the person I'm going to, I love them. God is not okay with that in that sense of what you're saying is I'm allowed to do this. It's a serious sin. Okay, The Pharisees had dropped that off. Now again, remember the heart of their conversation is not really do we agree with divorce or not. Their argument is we just want Jesus to act in opposition to the law. So how are we going to do that? We'll give him the law in its incomplete state. See, sadly, what a lot of times we as Christians do is we're taking God's word and we're not taking it as an entirety. We're kind of picking and choosing and we're not looking at the whole picture. Again, I don't mean to offend, but it might. But the, the Christian that says, you know what, you should we can drink wine because Jesus drank wine, that's their only argument. But if you if you put that out to its logical conclusion, that's not what Jesus was saying. And that's Jesus turning water into wine at the marriage feast is not the license for Christians to say, well, we can be social drinkers. You're taking one conclusion and you're twisting the law. Now again, there's a lot of Christians who won't like me this morning for saying that. Because the most rising thing in Christian circles today is this whole idea of Bible study and wine. And social drinking and say, well, Jesus drank wine. That's their That's their whole argument. Yet you follow the scriptures through and you do some study about wine and strong drink and you start finding out, well, maybe what Jesus, maybe he wasn't giving authority and allowing something as we think he was. It's the same way with divorce. This was not an establishment to say God's okay with it or that God allows it. There's something much deeper that's going on here and that's what we really need to see. That's uncleanness that's found in her, adultery, immorality. Now, that's where the Pharisees drew the line. They pushed away that last limitation, and they considered, and they had put it into custom, that divorce was allowed on an unlimited basis as long as she displeased me. Now, there wasn't uniform agreement to that. Pharisees argued over this. They argued and disputed over, is that really what the law says? Is that really what it's about? There were many ways in which our Lord's, what he said could be turned against him, however he responded. So we understand that in Deuteronomy 24, as we looked at, this was not a matter of, okay, they established divorce. So when we start talking to other Christians and we talk to other believers and we say, okay, where in the Bible does God say divorce is allowed and okay? Again, I believe we're often looking for a loophole. We're looking for something to make us feel better about our decision. He's not establishing divorce, but he's attempting in those days to limit a custom that was already known. What the goal of this limitation in in Deuteronomy 24 through 1 through 4 was, was to prohibit additional acts of immorality. It was to prevent more from happening. And again, that's why I encourage you, read all through Deuteronomy 24, because we're not, I'm not touching on all of this today. This was not a legislation or a law to sanction divorce. Now hear me carefully, but to protect the one who had been betrayed. Now that's why Jesus talks about the exception, except fornication. That's betrayal. Okay? Infidelity to your spouse is betrayal. Betrayal is what it is. It was an attempt to prevent that, not to establish a bill or a legislation to establish divorce. That's not what Deuteronomy 24 is doing, nor is that what Jesus is saying when he gives that. He's not trying to find and give you a reason or an okay or an allowance, but he is saying there is a serious matter that was with the intent of protecting the one who was betrayed against. Not the one, especially not the one who committed the act of betrayal. See, our country and our Christianity has decided that both parties in a situation like that should equally have the same, it should give you it the same way. The person who was betrayed against and the person who did the betraying. The word's very clearly saying the only person who was protected or had the exception was the one who was betrayed against. The whole goal was the protection of the offended one. Not so that people could say, well... You know, here's this act of infidelity. Divorce is okay now. That's not, you're missing the point. Because Jesus goes on, and again, if we stop there, we might say, well, what did Jesus say? Well, look at verse eight, very telling. So their question is, did he command? He didn't. Verse eight, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives." There's a big difference between commanding you and suffering you to. Suffering is really the idea here of it's not commanded. He is allowing an exception there. Again, if we stop there, oh, there's the exception. But notice the rest of the verse. But from the beginning, it was not so. Hardness of heart is now at the center stage. This is not just finding a loophole or a bill of how do I get out of my marriage. No, he's very clearly saying that this is because of the hardness of their hearts that that was given. Again, it was a custom that was already there. It's not the basis for our current divorce laws in the sense of what he's saying. Because if you've looked into this, it's, it's it's actually simpler now to get a divorce than it is to get married. When you think about it, it really is. And I mentioned to you last week, the, the divorce rate amongst Christians is outrunning the divorce rate between over non-believers. So what Jesus is saying is that Moses was tolerating, of course, an evil custom with restrictions, knowing that people were not going to give up something that had been established for such a long time. They were not able to bear a higher law. And he's treating them and he treated them as people that were diseased with hardness of heart not with a desire to give a bill of divorcement, but with the hopes that they would be brought back to a better better state. When when Jesus makes mention here, from the beginning it was not so, here's what that means. God from the beginning had no intention that divorce was ever going to be allowed. So Jesus and God did not say from the beginning, look, let man and woman be joined, let no man put them asunder, but we're going to give them an exception. That's not what his intent was. His intent was that that would be a lifelong covenant and a lifelong marriage. So again, we're asking the question, is it allowed? Is God approve of it? Is it okay? Jesus is going much deeper than that. And we should go much deeper than that. When we're considering these truths, we need to think more biblically than is God okay with something? I mean, Christians are looking for licenses to do all sorts of things. Is God okay with this? Is that really what the goal is? If God's okay with it? Then I have approval of it? Or do I really want what God's intention was? We should want what God's intention was. I'll say this, and I'll say it very clearly. When I talk with couples who want to get married, I mentioned this to you a few weeks ago, I try to scare them out of it. And you think that's cruel. It's not cruel. Because what you are covenanting to, you don't realize it when you're sitting there. Because you think this is a piece of cake and it's going to be easy. And you think, I'm not going to have to work at this. And I love this person so much. I'm telling you, when you understand what you're actually committing to and you're covenanting to, nobody enters into this lightly. But if you enter into it thinking, okay, here's the deal. I know what God said. God said, if my wife or my husband cheats on me, I can get out. Everything else I can deal with. That's the wrong attitude. All you have to do is point husbands to Ephesians 5 and tell them that they're to love, their bride and love love them as Christ loved the church. Most husbands look at you, future husbands look at you like a deer in the headlight when they really start thinking about what that means. Jesus loves us even when we sin. Jesus loves us when we commit acts of treason against him. We are spiritual adulterers toward Jesus Christ every single day. Did he leave you? No. It's not about allowing something. It's about what was God's intent. You say, well, preacher, you're, just, you're painting this with two black and white. No, I'm just giving you, it was never the intent to give an exception although Jesus is speaking about the seriousness of this infidelity. So there was no provision for Adam putting away his wife. In the beginning, there was no provision that God gave gave Eve to Adam and said, Now, Adam, she's going to be a handful. If she's a handful and she displeases you, you just walk away from her. There's no provision ever made for it because that was never the intent. The intent was never to give you an out. Again, remember the hardness of heart. That's what's key to this. Because of the hardness of your heart. So it's not a good thing that something's being given to us because we have a hard time bearing the higher law. See, I'm still convinced. I'm still convinced Christians don't take marriage serious enough. I'm still convinced that many, many people get married who shouldn't. And yet people do it one after the other. And we need to understand what we're getting into. And not looking at, well, what does God allow? What is God okay with? So there was no provision for Adam putting away Eve. There was no desire even in that environment before the fall, obviously, right? So the enactment of the Mosaic Bill of Divorcement was based upon a very loose interpretation of Scripture, and it was distorted. It wasn't something that they were saying, well, doesn't the law command? No, they were distorting what the intent was. So Jesus, back in our text, says, and I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Make no doubt about it. infidelity, immorality, fornication makes the person guilty of this a subject for a, what is called here a lawful divorce, if you will. Because in infidelity, that is a disannulling, if you will, of the marriage bond. I mean, it would. think about it. It would be like it, when we're unfaithful to Christ, Him separating the covenant He made with us. Well, how many times since you've been saved is he, should He have broken that? Daily. How many times have you been unfaithful to Him? How many times have I been unfaithful to Him? How many times, if He was looking for a way out, should He have just left us? I would submit to you, He should have left you this morning. He should have left you in the conversation that you had with your own wife or husband yesterday. Our sin is so ingrained in us, we don't think about the faithfulness that Christ is to us every single day and how we don't deserve any of this. But yet we're looking for how can we undo our covenant and our relationship. You say, well, pastor, you're not not giving anything, you're not giving any leeway for circumstances. I'm going to get there. Well, we can't get there by simply saying that there's all these things God is okay with. Look, there are some really, really bad things that happen in Christian marriages. There are some really bad things that happen. But understanding something, how's the approach here? What is Jesus telling us? What are we learning about this? Is he saying it's okay and look for the loophole? Or does he want us to focus on the fact but that was never the intent from the beginning? even though he does clearly say, except it be for fornication. Now, there's also this this discussion and this argument we need to think about that when we take things out of their context, we think that's all that's ever said on a matter. Understand that Jesus up to this point in his discipling the, the disciples, if you will, had not told them everything because there were things they were not able to bear with. You know, we act like Jesus unloaded the whole doctrinal wagon on them. No, there were things he couldn't tell them, I and mean, he clearly says, because you can't bear this. He says something similar in John 16, uh, John chapter 16, verse number 12. He says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whose whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. There were things that Jesus did not tell his disciples about. However, the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, many of you know this passage, you know this chapter. Again, I am not able to expound every verse of chapter 7 today, but I do want to draw your attention to a couple things that Paul addresses about marriage that Jesus didn't say anything about. In 1 Corinthians 7, in the very first part of the verses, Paul deals with what do you do in a case of a marriage between a believer and a non-believer? And that's specifically what he has at the heart of this. Now, notice 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and drop down to verse number 10. He says, And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if... She depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not and she is pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. You've got a believing person and a non-believing person. If they're okay dwelling together, let them stay together. Right? So, if, if you got married and you married an unbeliever, that's not a reason to leave them. Say they're an unbeliever. No, if they're pleased to dwell, then dwell. Stay. However, notice for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, verse 14, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Now drop down to verse, um, let's let's stop there, Let let me deal with this first. All right, so Paul's dealing with the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, and he makes mention of the reality of this what happens in a state, the married. Well, verse, the first part of the verses tell us that if you are in a married state, you should remain in that state. It's permanent. Okay, so you saw that in verses 10 and 11. The married I command, yet not I, let not the wife depart from her husband, and if she depart, let her remain. God had rules for this. Clearly says, don't depart. That establishes that. But then he, he speaks that he's unbelievers, the one believer and an unbeliever. And he says that if that unbelieving husband in that case leaves, let him leave. Now, that is a difficult concept. It's a difficult subject to deal with. But when we see what Paul is addressing here, you'll notice that Paul reiterates that it's Christ, it is his command for the permanency of marriage. And in verses 12 through 16, he is dealing specifically with one believing and one unbelieving spouse. The reason I'm telling you that is because people use that as their means or their authority in every marriage. So they start to say, see, this is what it says. If he departs, let him depart. It specifically says an unbelieving spouse. That's key to understanding this. Paul is not advising something that's contrary to what Christ had been teaching, okay? Again, if, you're using, if you have the Reform, Reformation Heritage Bible, you'll notice a note on verse 12. Paul's not advising something contrary to Christ's teaching, but addressing a situation that Christ did not specifically address. Paul encourages the believer to remain in the marriage and seek peace, not put her away. If the unbelieving spouse is pleased to remain in the marriage, then the believer should not divorce her. Okay, it goes on. The home of a believer is set apart as for blessing before God, even the unbelieving spouse and children. Now notice the note on verse 15. If the unbelieving spouse is not willing to remain, the believing husband or wife is to let the unbelieving spouse depart. Again, the Christian is to pursue peace always. Again, we're always looking for the loophole. Jesus very clearly said that Their exception was for this uncleanness, this fornication. It was to protect the one who had been offended against. The Lord is is not treating these things as things we should just look at and say, okay, here's what the law is. Here's how you should focus on this. Here's how you should believe this. This was to very clearly give us situations that are being addressed. Ultimately, is marriage to be permanent? Yes, yes. Is the intention that the person you marry is the person that you are going to be married to your whole life and the only real true exception should be death. Yeah. Even in a, in a case, and I'm going to say this carefully because I, I, I know how sensitive this is. Even in a case of infidelity, that doesn't mean that you just simply, that's what has to be the end result. Okay, they did this. So it's over. Again, I'm, being, I'm trying to be sensitive about this because I know it's a sensitive issue. There's a big difference in exceptions and being allowed and being okay with. There still is the reality that Jesus is not saying or granting a bill of divorcement and giving us authorization to. However, that, that offense of infidelity is the exception that Jesus does talk about. So if I have counseled people, and again, if you ever want some of the and again, I don't, I don't, I'm not looking for pity, but if you ever want to understand one of the toughest conversations I ever have is when I have to counsel couples in this very area, and they want to know what can and can I not do. Sometimes they just want me to say, You're free. You're loose because Jesus said, except for the fornication, that's your exception. You have every right to go. Is there an exception? Yes. Is that what the intent was? No. Is the intent for you to stay together until, you, until death do you part? Yes, that's why you take that in the traditional marriage vows. That's why you used to say it. It's going away. But that's why we do it. It's because that's what God intended for it to be, was permanent When we start to begin to change and trifle with what God's intent was or change the definition, that's, that's a sin against the Lord. Now, any nation can make whatever law they want, right? Our nation can make a law and they can say, all right, we've decided that here's, here's the reasons you can get a divorce. Every state is different. There are some states that say there's, there's called no fault. There's divorces that are called, you can do it, you can have this or this. And even if a state or a country tries to redefine it, if they try to redefine marriage, which you live in a country that's doing that, they've already done it. They've already redefined what marriage is. They can do whatever they want to do, but that doesn't change what God's intent was. And it doesn't change what the law of God is. Once you're married, you're married in the sight of God and you are to be married for life. And now is, there is this exception, going all the way back through to Deuteronomy 24, that Jesus is talking about, of a proven, serious adultery or fornication. There is an exception that's being made there. But let me say this. No matter what a nation tries to do, no matter what the nation tries to say about male and female... God does not recognize a single same-sex marriage whether they call themselves Christians or not. It is not acknowledged in the sight of God. I don't care what the state of Ohio tells them. They are not legally married in the eyes of God. Period. When a male and a female do it God's way, in the eyes of God, you are married. And you are married for life. That's what the intent was. I I try to tell young people when I talk to them, I say, I want you to understand. It is not, this, what you feel this day is not going to be enough for you to stay together. And you're going to find that out less than a year into a marriage that even what you had on your wedding day is not enough to sustain you. It's got to move much further than that. Because the seriousness of it, when you look at them, you look across some, they're so star-crossed with each other. They can't see two feet in front of them. And you say, Do you realize what death, till death do you part, means? Oh, yeah, 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 we got it. No, you don't got it. Terrible, you don't got it. Because we don't live in the moments of thinking about what does this mean? I, I'm not approaching this with. Well, if it doesn't work, I'll just just find another one. No, it was the intent that you stay together. And I would tell you it's even the intent of God to stay together even in an act of infidelity. You say, preacher, people can't do that. Look, I'm trying to be sensitive about that. I'm just telling you there's a big difference in what God's okay with. It was never intentioned that there would even be bills of divorcement especially among God's people. Now again, this brings up a whole lot of other things. Divorce was never commanded. There is a provision made in the cases of this infidelity. God made a provision for betrayal for the one who was sinned against. Death was the intended single purpose to be released from the bond of marriage. I will tell you this, and again, I'm going to try to be very sensitive about this. There are situations of abuse. There are situations of violence. There are situations of desertion. I have heard of them personally. I have had other people ask me, counsel, what does the Bible say about these things? And I'm going to say this, and I may not, it may not be popular today, but I'm going to say it. In the acts of violence, in the acts of abuse, in the acts of diversion, of a desertion, a believing husband doesn't do that to his wife. You can frame this any way you want, But if you are in Christ Jesus, you do not ever abuse your wife. Mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I'm telling you, in this country, we are are giving our Christian man all sorts of passes. Well, he just had a bad day. No, he didn't just have a bad day. Because a believing husband is not going to do that to his wife. He's not going to abuse her. Again, these are very difficult situations, personal situations in our own family we know about where that very thing of abuse was happening. And if you think that I would tell a wife who's being battered by her husband, you got to go back to him, no. That man, number one, he's more than repentance. He needs to come to Christ and he needs to be saved because a believing husband doesn't do that. A believing husband is not looking for ways out. And if that husband understands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he understands he has to love his wife even in her moments of unfaithfulness and infidelity. And I'm telling you, that's what God intended. And that's why he deals with this. Not all people can receive this. Believe it or not, and I know we have this whole movement going on in our nation who thinks that it's the goal, it is God's plan for all of their lives to be married and have families. That is not biblical at all. There are, single, there are people who God has intended for you to be single. And there are people that will be single all their life because they do not even have the desire. And that's what, Paul, that's what Jesus is dealing with in the remainder here. Because the disciples actually ask him the question. His disciples say unto him in verse 10, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it's not good to marry. He said listen if this is if this is the level of commitment if this is what this is then he's better off if he doesn't marry. They had come to look at the ease of this bill of divorcement. They had even started to believe that this was a way of escaping it. I don't think we understand how much this had infiltrated their society. So when we talk like this today and we say divorce is so easy in our country, it was that easy to them. It was probably even easier. So what does Jesus, as the master teacher, tell them? Well, Jesus is very carefully, he says in verse 11, but he said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. Their disciples thought it's better not to marry if you marry for life. That seemed to be what their, their meaning or their thoughts on the matter was. Even his disciples, as they looked at the risk of being in an unhappy married life, concluded, man, it's better just to stay single good not to marry, they said. By the way, there is some truth in that. There are people who shouldn't be married. Now, God determines that, but there are people who shouldn't be married. There are people who are single. There are preachers who are going all over the world in evangelism who don't have spouses. They don't have children. And they don't have any desire to be husbands. they don't have any desires to be father. And, some, and sometimes our society makes them feel badly. Why don't you want to be like everyone else? Jesus very clearly says there are some who this was not intended for. You know I, that's why, again, I'm not going to mention any names, but that's why be very careful about always talking about when is your child going to get married, and always hearing about when you're going to find a spouse, when you're going to find a husband, when you're going to find a wife. Look, don't rush that. Why do we do that? Why do they get to college and the colleges decide it's their job to say, find a spouse. No. You're not finding a spouse. It's God who's going to put you together. I'm convinced more people marry people they shouldn't have married because they're just rushing. They're looking for the first person who seems to line up with them. It's not the way it was supposed to be. And he clearly says that it may be better. In verse 11, he says, all men can't receive this saying. It may be better in some respects not to marry, but all men can't receive and accept this saying and to put it into practice. It is true of people being single. It's not for everybody. There are situations where people are, that is the way that God has created them to not be married. Verse 12, he gives, and we won't go into a lot of depth in this, but he's talking about eunuchs. And eunuchs, if you understand, there was an element of celibacy to them. And he makes mention there are some eunuchs celibacy which were born from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there were be the eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He is able to receive it. Let him receive it. Others will find it is better that I don't marry. Others, it says, will subdue the desires of nature for holy reasons, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. But that's not for all. Now, you shouldn't be compelled one way or the other. In other words, forced celibacy should not be forced upon you, i.e. the Roman Catholic Church that says you are forced to be celibate. That's a, that's, that is the seedbed of sin, and that's why you see the problems that you see. That's forced If you're going to be a priest, you cannot. Well, there are people that are priests that shouldn't be. Right? Shouldn't be priests, number one. But you understand what I'm saying. You shouldn't be that in the first place, and now you're adding to the act something that nobody has a right to tell you that you have to be celibate. A man can choose that. A woman can choose that. I've heard way too many things about single women and single men being, felt, being made to feel like they were something less because they didn't have the same desire to get married. It's not scriptural. I don't know who, I don't know when that happened. Look, you, this is just what you do. You either get married out of high school or you get, graduate high school, go to college, get married in college, or get married right after you get out of college. That's just, that's just the American way. It's just the way you do it. You better have a lot more than just because the way people do it. Because you're entering into a life, a lifetime. The Bible tells us marriage is honorable in all. When we violate the purity of what God has said is honorable, we need guidance, we need grace. We might choose the way that's not the common road. Remember, the Pharisees were desirous of drawing something from Jesus that they might accuse Him of. Oftentimes, people have already decided what they want to do before they ask for counsel. Sometimes people come to pastors and elders and they're not asking for counsel. They've already decided what they're wanting to do. They just want you to tell them it's okay. Jesus simply replied by asking, have you read the account of creation? Do you remember the first example of marriage? At the very least, all we could say is that Jesus is saying that the departure from marriage, except for fornication, should be the case. He sets conditions. He sets what is to be kept. But along the lines of what we said before, that when the gospel is truly believed and embraced, it does does make men kind and loving spouses. It makes us kind relatives. It makes us kind and faithful friends. It reaches to areas to where we do bear the burdens and we bear the infirmities of those. If I could tell people that are gonna get married, one thing, first of all, is that part of that marriage is you gotta consider the peace and happiness of the other person more than than yourself. Most marriages are all about what is me, what's best for me, what I need, what I want, how you're failing me, how you're not being what I thought you'd be. Don't even think about getting married if you don't intend on living forever that way. I believe God wanted us to learn that the married state, and Jesus was teaching here, should be entered into with great seriousness and earnest prayer, not forced upon us, not forced to where we can find a license to end it, but to truly understand what Jesus was talking about here, that marriage was meant to be for life. It was meant to be for life between one man and one woman. That will always be true. And if you get accused of being unloving because you will not recognize a same-sex marriage, you're not being unloving. The most loving thing you can do is tell them the truth about why God disapproves of this and why God's word Should needs to be obeyed because God's word is authority. I hope this will help us. Father, Lord, we've dealt with a serious and difficult subject matter this morning, Lord, and I pray that through the feebleness of my words, Lord, that the Holy Spirit of God would take that which we needed and give us understanding and discernment. Lord, this is such a serious matter and such a serious issue. And Lord, I pray that we would have the wisdom and the discernment to hear and see the truth. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. Lord, that it does change us. And that, Lord, when you set out your word, Lord, it's not to be trifled with, it's not to be changed or updated. We may have a hard time bearing with what the requirements are, but it's your word. Father, I do pray that you would be be putting us in mind and reminding us through the Spirit, even to those that are in marriages now, the seriousness of staying together till death do them part. And that, Lord, we would not take these matters lightly. I pray you'd be with each one that may be considering marriage and maybe even is getting married, Lord, that they would understand, Lord, that this is what you've ordained. And marriage is honorable, it's honorable in all. But Father, there is a way that is right in man's eyes, and there's a way that's wrong. Father, even to our youngest children that may be years and years and years away, Lord, may it be put into their hearts that they understand the seriousness of what it is to enter into the covenant of marriage. Father, we thank you and we praise your name. It's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen.